This show is distributed by SoundCloud. Welcome! Welcome to episode 107 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Hey, Jason, how are you doing? I'm, I'm afraid to say probably not too well. Yeah, I'm still sick. I have uh, three weeks now, and I have the uh, unending chest cold. It just won't go away. Now we've, we both sound like uh, recovering drug addicts. Yeah, it's terrible. You know, I went to the doctor. I finally went to the doctor a couple of days ago, and uh, you know, cause usually the chest cold doesn't go away after a couple of weeks. It can be something more serious. And, uh, after the blood tests and everything else, they're like, no, it's just a really bad chest cold, but I've already gone through all the antibiotics and, uh, still not gone away. So I don't know. Now that's interesting. I didn't know that antibiotics were for colds. Um, they, they work, they work that way. Do they? I don't know. You know, uh, they gave me some antibiotics and I took them. I was, I'm, I was sort of hoping for a miracle cure of some kind. So I took the various prescription cough medicines and things and none of it helped at all. It was just total my six hours waiting around at the urgent care is a total waste of time. Huh? Yeah. I mean, the only good part is that when you go and you talk to the doctor and they take, do the tests and they do the blood tests and they check your, you know, your breathing, your oxygen capacity and all that. And then they basically tell you you're not dying. At least, you know, you're not dying. <laughs> <laughs> so right. at least you get that out of your hand. You're like, well, it's just a bad chest cold. I don't have something more serious. Cause you know, you, you know, when you're feeling really bad and it's not getting better after a certain number of days, you start to wonder, man, is this not, is this something worse? You know? Yeah. Have you ever watched the show uh, Mystery Diagnosis? I haven't, no. I mean, it's not the best show in the world. It's like on Discovery Channel or something and it, this kind of show comes on at like midnight and it's like when you're flipping through the channel and you can't wa- find anything else to watch and you can't fall asleep. That's the kind of show it is. Right. And they have these people who, each show is like an hour long and, and it'll have, be like three different cases where someone will have something that it first seems like some kind of normal sickness, right? They're feeling bad. They have a bad cold. They have a bad stomach ache. And it gets progressively worse and worse. And it goes on for months or years and the doctors can't figure it out. And they're like really on the verge of death until finally some really bright uh, doctor figures out, oh, you have this extremely rare disease that only 15 people in the United States ever get. And this and, and saves their life at the last minute. So there's always that thing in the back of your mind, go, man, I wonder if I have like one of those mystery diagnosis things. <laughs> so that sounds a lot like house, except like a real world. Version. Yeah, exactly. I guess it's kind of similar. So you so, just, you just got back from, uh, from a week, what a week long trip in new Orleans. Yeah. Um, so I was, we had a, a week long trip in new Orleans, but we're also down. We spent a few days in Savannah, Georgia, which I was just very, very impressed with. Absolutely beautiful place. No, no, Savannah, Georgia is not that close to New Orleans. It's not like it was like a couple hours away, right? I mean, you drove away. <laughs> no, it was like a, like a, an 11 hour drive of which I drove six hours um, both ways. So uh, I did like 12 hours driving. So I got a lot of good driving in. Um, it's, I, I really actually enjoy that long distance driving. I, of course, I didn't know this being new to driving. I didn't know that I enjoyed it, but it's great. You can just set it on cruise control and... Um, so, you know, cruise along the highways. Yes, Sandy loves to do the long distance drive. I can't stand it. I, it bores me to tears. So whenever we drive long distance, and, and we do it fairly regularly because Sandy's parents um, live in, they retired to Las Vegas a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So we head out there for a couple months. And I just, she drives. I just 
you know, sit in the passenger seat and seat and read the whole way. <laughs> Cause I can't stand it. You know, it just bores me. You, sweet. You used to sound like you've got the best arrangement in your marriage. Worked out pretty well. I think yeah. <laughs> at least for me. No, I, you know, yeah. it's, I think one of the keys to uh, a good marriage is having sort of uh, being complimentary. Right. So right. you have complimentary strengths and weaknesses and also in skill sets, but also things that you like to do and don't like to do. Right. So there's things that, so Sandy loves to cook. Right. So and she's a good cook, so I get to eat a lot of really good food. She can't stand to do the dishes. I don't really mind doing the dishes. Works out, you know, that kind of stuff. Nice. So, uh, well, let me shoot. So you went to Savannah for a couple of days, and you actually, you were mentioning to me a couple of days ago that you're, you guys are actually considering um, moving to Savannah. I think that that will be um, a really nice place to, to live, yeah. I mean, um, it's what's amazing about it is it's kind of like, it's got all the good aspects of all my favorite places. Uh-huh. So it kind of reminds me of um, London, all the, all the nice things about London that I really like, like Hampstead and Primrose Hill. And then it reminds me of, because it, it, it has the kind of very similar architecture and very similar kind of feel and the, just the whole way it's put together. It, it doesn't even feel like you're in America when you're there. Right. It's got like, it, it's got like, actual paving stones, you know, which is so rare. Like the so, rest of America. So Savannah just, is like colonial. It's like a colonial age era. Uh, it's town, sort of, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. That's a good way. That's a good way of putting it, but that kind of makes it sound stuffy. Whereas it's not stuffy because, well, what's really no, interesting it makes about it seem, it makes it seem quaint. Like it, it makes it seem like, uh, it just makes it seem, uh, um, like you'd, you'd walk down the street and go, wow, look at, look at that interesting architecture. Well, yeah, well, yeah. But what, something that's kind of very cool about it is, um, there's a there's a college of art and design that's been there since um, seventy nine, so it's it's pretty new. But since seventy nine, um, it's been growing and growing and growing, a little bit like a fungus within the town, right? So that right. puts it in a bad way. But it, it the the good aspect is that it started off with something like a hundred students, and now there's nine thousand. So essentially, this town that's kind of colonial and quaint and set in its ways now has like nine thousand little David Bowie's and Mick Jagger's walking around, you know, just, just ready to start some kind of new social trend. And it's very interesting. That is in that well, it kind of, it's, it's kind of like maybe Austin, Texas, right. And that has, Austin is like a home to, of a lot of really good music, I think. Right. And, um, it changes the culture of these small towns when you have, um, universities or things like that. I mean, I mean, I've heard of the Savannah school of, I think it's art and design. And, you know, yeah. obviously that's not even my world. The fact that I've heard about it means that it's probably pretty well known. Yeah, so um, so that's what kind of excites me about it because it's a place where you you just get the sense that some kind of cultural shift is waiting to come out of this place, right? It's it's really interesting and young and vibrant, but at the same time, it's kind of beautiful. And what's exciting about it is I can almost imagine the cultural shift will rather than be some kind of subversive cultural shift. It's more like something that's rooted in you know I don't know romance and beauty, <laughs> if you know what I mean. No, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. I can, I can imagine why, why that would be an attractive place to live. You know, I grew up in Atlanta, which is, you know, I don't know, four or five hours from Savannah, maybe. Um, yeah. You were, t- you were saying that. Yeah. I think I, I, I think I'd been there once as a kid. I can't really remember it that well. Um, and my, my brother and his family live in uh, Savannah actually. So, and so, so what's, what's Atlanta like? I mean, why did you even leave Atlanta? Um, well, Atlanta is a pretty big city. Atlanta um, well, okay. There's two questions. Your first question, why did I leave? I mean, you know, I, I spent my whole life there. I wanted to, you know, when I went to college, I wanted to go to a different part of the country. So I went to, you know, when I went to the University of Chicago 
it was partly about going to a good school, but part of, it, part of it was about just getting out to another part of the country and getting out on my own. Because up, up at the, an, another nice feature of that whole area is this kind of civility that everyone has towards each other. So you notice that? I mean, you notice that there was a marked difference in how friendly people in the South are, or at least Savannah are completely to, compared to. I, I mean, I, I really felt like people, as you're walking down the street, people just basically said hello, you know, and took the time of day to say hello and. Hi, this is my dog Peanut. <laughs> Things like that. Really? Yeah, it was just really nice. So it wasn't, the, it wasn't nice. the absence of rudeness. Is that people were going out of their way to engage you? I think so. Yeah, yeah. That's that actually, was my my experience. Because I don't notice people not being friendly here in Pasadena or in LA. I don't. It's not like I walk around thinking, oh, people are so rude. So it's the absence of rudeness would would strike me. I, I mean, right? I mean, do you, have you run into a lot of rudeness? In, uh, in California? No, not no, not really. But but you run into you know in 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 LA. I mean, I certainly run into a lot of kind of fake niceness. You know, whereas you didn't get that sense down down in Savannah. I don't know if we're we're sticking with this subject too much. Maybe we need to shift. Okay. But anyway, I just yeah, really liked it. Well, well nice. the other big bonus, the one reason you consider moving there is because the cost of living. Like you could buy a house for a quarter the price that would cost here, right? A, car price, yeah. a house that would cost a million dollars here in Pasadena would probably cost you 250000 or less in Savannah. I think so. I th- I th- I'd say 250000 to kind of 350000 probably. We'd buy you a three to mm-hmm. four bedroom, a three bedroom, nice, interesting older house. Well, it depends on the, it depends on the area. Once again, you know, in, in the kind of historic district, it's going to be more expensive. But for, l- let me put it this way. There's plenty of houses for around seven hundred thousand mm-hmm. there that would be about three million here. Kind yeah, of thing. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You basically got to be a millionaire to buy a house in Pasadena, as far as I can tell. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So uh, okay, well, why don't let's let's get into the tech. Um, uh, and again, I apologize to our to our listeners that I'm you know going to have a hard time talking without coughing, so I won't talk a lot. So Justin, it's going to be on you to fill fill some of the dead air. Hey, hey! Listen, before we get into the tech, let's say a huge thank you to um, to people who donated. Oh yeah, so you uh, we we got some donations because uh, we we mentioned it on the show that we needed some help, and you, um, which I much appreciate, spent some time setting up the PayPal donation yeah. system. So, so yeah. basically, um, that's at techzinglive dot com forward slash donate. So this this show's executive producer is David Kincaid who donated 50 bucks. Thank you very much. That's really, really appreciated. And um, we also have a grand patron of this show um, who is an anonymous donor who gave us 100 bucks. So obviously we're extremely grateful. Thank you very much. Um, you know who you are and uh, it's, it's much appreciated. So David Kincaid, thanks. And anonymous donor, thanks. So when you say anonymous, it wasn't anon. It wasn't no, anonymous. It was, <laughs> no, it wasn't the subversive uh, hacking organization anonymous. It was actu- an actual person. <laughs> yeah, because uh, Bams was uh, he was a little uh, wigged out about even mentioning the name on on their comments. He said, "Look, don't even." He said, "Don't even mention them. Don't even." It's a, it's a list not to be. Uh, it's a name not to be even mentioned. Well, that's right because they're, then they're gonna they're gonna hack us, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, my God. So let's let's talk about that. Um, yeah, shoot. Well, I know that it's something that's been very you've been very interested in. So, what's your perspective on it? Well, I've read every article on the HB Gary Anonymous story um, on ARS uh, Technica 
And Glenn Greenwald on salon, at Salon.com has written quite a bit because he was a subject of their, of H.B. Gary's, um, or Aaron Barr's potential attack. I love the email you sent to me that said, so uh, look at this H.B. Gary story. This is how people could use Plugio for nefarious, dark reasons. Well, it was interesting, yeah, because <laughs> one, of the, um, one of the later uh, parts of the story, because was was this that um and, and and let me get let me say one thing so anonymous hacked the hb gary federal and i think it's the hb gary uh site as well so there's hb gary and there's hb gay federal hb gay hb gary federal is a subsidiary right um they hacked anonymous hacked them and uh you know had access to 40,000 emails company emails okay so some of the information um, about in, that was contained in, in the emails were about persona uh, management, where H.P. Gary Federal were considering um, and were proposing to the government and to different corporations the idea of creating a, a lot of different fake personas that would be on Twitter and Facebook and other social media sites, and they would build up these personas, and one person could manage them all. So you could say, you know, we've talked about this this concept is fairly innocuous concept of sock puppeting. So if you're creating a new website, like when Reddit first started, um, the, uh, Alex and um, I think Steve were the two founders, uh, mm-hmm. co-founders of, of Reddit. And they, they, in order to get people to use the site, they uh, created a bunch of fake accounts, fake handles and submitted a bunch of stories. So if you came to Reddit, you go, Oh, there's more than like one person on this site. Right. Mm-hmm. And they did. They, and so the, the, and those fake Handles are, are referred to as sock puppets. So they, they used sock puppeting for the first couple of weeks just to demonstrate that there was some activity on the site. And then, then they're off to the races. So a lot of sites do that. And they sort of, and I wouldn't say they have to do it, but it really helps get things going. And it's not really a nefarious thing. But, you know, okay, obviously you're faking people out to think that there are more people on than there really are. But uh, Aaron Barr at HB Gary Federal was, consider, was proposing this idea of creating really fully fleshed out personas um, that would that they could then use to um, say cons- make it seem that there's a consensus that something that something is true or not true. So, for instance, let's say that there was something, some story that was brought up that was attacking um, one of their clients, say a bank, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say that the story um, was discussing some corruption within the, the uh, you know or some bad activity on the part of the of the bank. Well, if this bank hired H B Gary Federal. To they could they could hire them to create all the you know a hundred of these fake personas um, that are, are, are utilized fifty or hundred of them or some percentage of them that HB Gary Federal has cultivated over the period of a year or two to all start commenting on this um, on this story basically discrediting it and or or they're bringing up um, sort of you know other topics and kind of getting getting everybody off on the wrong tangent. So those personas could, for example, go to Huffington Post to the comments section. And comment against it, completely against it, or lead people down the garden path. And they could go to uh, I don't know Mashable or TechCrunch or wherever in the in any kind of website, or I guess WikiLeaks related websites. Sure. And just kind of steer the whole conversation in a in a direction of their choosing. And it's sort of a method of disinformation. You, you creating you know which you know the CIA and other intelligence agencies have been long known to have, have, have participated in, and you know you can. You can do a lot of different things. Like you'd have these personas introducing information in the comment section that is, is, is sort of right, but then it's proven by other people to be wrong. And then they, you know, I mean, just all these different things they can do to confuse the topic, muddy the waters, 
um, counter the storyline, whatever. And it's and, and so if you came on later and you said, oh, you know, you, first you were maybe intrigued by the storyline, and then you start reading all these comments that sound pretty intelligent, and all these different people are like, yeah, this is BS, and the guy who wrote the story has an agenda, and the stuff is not true. And then you might go, oh, I guess, yeah, the, to- the comments really, they really crush the story, so I guess it's not true. When in fact, it was just all one person with some automated system um, that allowed them to create all these fake personas. And that was one of the things that made me think of Plugio, because in H.B. Gary Federal and these emails, that when they were discussing this idea of, of creating um, of, of persona management, were using automated social media tools to do this. And I was like, well, that's what Plugio can be used for. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's, it, and it's a good point. I mean, it, it's, like, it's like kind of anything. I mean, you can use tools for good or for evil. I, don't, I have no idea how I could police that. I mean, I, I, I couldn't, for example, vet all user accounts, something like that. I mean, it just goes against my principles. Um, but what, 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 uh, what principle? Because guess what principle? Well, I just don't like the. I don't just. I don't like the privacy implications of me kind of looking through people's user accounts and seeing whether they're kind of doing nefarious activities with it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 kind of interesting. You know, you can almost make it a policy that you do that people are not allowed. Like, if, if one of your policies may be that you disallow fake personas. Yeah, and you could say, well, if it's your own persona or if it's your company account or whatever, that's fine. But so that if anyone have reported that these are fake personas that are that are using being used to manipulate um, situations, ma- manipulate discourse, then th- those those are could be shut down. I guess that's a good strategy. So basically, if it comes, you know, if it comes to our attention, we could kind of say, although we don't kind of look through accounts, if it does come to our attention that this kind of persona spamming is going on, then you your account will be closed. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. Yeah, I mean you know you're, you're absolutely right that you know tools can be used for good or for evil, and it's just an interesting way that these tools can be used for essentially manipulation. Um, well, think of all the all the all the evil ways that you could use App Ignite. Yeah, I mean you can build anything out of App Ignite. So <laughs> yeah, you can build all kind of stuff. Absolutely, there's infinitely more evil possibilities than with Plugio. You're probably right. <laughs> so. um one thing I want to talk a little bit about uh, on the H.B. Gary uh, anonymous story, which I think is even uh, more interesting, is how technically anonymous hacked H.B. Gary's um, or H.B. Gary Federal. And well, they used some Gary. social engineering, didn't they? Okay, so let me see if I can remember how it went. Um, so it started that uh, anonymous hacked a custom CMS that was built and being uh, for H.B. Gary Federal okay. using a SQL SQL injection. It was simply like a a normal um, URL, like a get, like, you know, show page, you know, 10 to page 20 kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they were able to use a SQL injection to get access to the, um, to the database. And then mm-hmm. they used um, rain, a, a rainbow table attack, and they were able to get all of the passwords um, for the uh, database that were, that, that were contained within the CMS database. And the data, the the passwords were hashed, but they were only hashed using MD5, and the passwords were not salted, and they were not stretched. Stretched meaning that you rerun the same algorithm, so you could run MD5 ten thousand times on the same um, password, and it would be ten times ten thousand times more um, time intensive to um, you know, attempt to crack it. Mm-hmm. That's why it's a good idea not only to to you, to hash it, but also to um, to stretch what's called stretching or, or, or run iterations on it, and then also using a, a salt so that 
um, if, if someone does use a rainbow table, they, they may not necessarily, that rainbow table won't be created with whatever salt you used. And this, and of course, this is the people creating this essentially were uh, creating something for as, as good as, I mean, pretty much a government kind of organization, right? Well, HB Gary Federal had subcontracted it out to some company that built the CMS. So it was probably some web development company. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that web development company, like a, a pretty. A, a pretty bad, given that they're building something for the government. Well, they weren't building for government. They're building for HBG for Federal. HB Gary Federal is not government. Just because they put federal in their name doesn't mean they're government. They're just a, a small yeah. subsidiary of HB Gary, Gary, which is a sort of a security consulting firm. So um, <clears throat> anyway, so they did. So the, the CMS had two fundamental flaws. One that it would that they didn't prevent SQL injection, which of course is a is a rookie error. The second is that they didn't use stretching or salting, and that they used MD5 as their encryption algorithm. So they could have done those three other things. And those are all standard practice um, security measures. That you'd think that a firm that is actually a consulting firm that builds these kind of things would, would do as just a matter of course. I wonder how much they, they charged for that. Probably quite a bit. So then what happened is once they had all the passwords, they, they used those passwords, I believe. Now, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember this because I didn't reread the article a second time. I, I meant to read it a second time so I could memorize it. Well, then they this, could but, use rainbow hashes and work well, out no, what the actual passwords that, no, that's are. That's what they did first. They used the rainbow table attack to, to get all the passwords from, or a majority of the passwords from the CMS. Okay, so it's passwords against, against email addresses kind of thing. Right, and so what happened was, they had, they got, once they got the pa- passwords, it turns out that um, I, I think one of the main programmers, plus Aaron Barr, who was the CEO of HB Gary, Gary Federal, used a very simple password. It was a six-character password with two of the di- with only two of the digits being numbers and the rest being characters. Mm. And as it turned out, um, they were able to log in. They were able to SSH into their server because um, both uh, Aaron Barr and this other guy used reused the same password that they did in the CMS for their uh, SSH login. I think. To their server, so then they could get that, which is another problem. You're not supposed to reuse passwords, right? Hold on, but that's that's interesting because SSH um, essentially kind of has this timeout in between each try, right? So it was it was good that they could work out, you know, straight away to go for that. Well, I mean, they didn't have to because they just said, all right, well, Aaron Barr's password is hello one two, let's say, and then he, then they they, they said, well, let's try that as his login. Boom, it worked. <laughs> and the you know because they oh, so then they're into that then they're into the main server, yeah. and then once they were in their main server, <clears throat> I think they they realized they noticed that they use uh, Google Apps for their email, and as it turned out I think they reused the same passwords for <laughs> the email account. So then they got into all and 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 because Aaron Barr was the administrator for all of the um, for all of the email accounts that they got into all the emails for HB Gary Federal. They could literally just emails. export the whole, the four, you know, 40,000 messages kind of thing. Yeah. Now, then the next thing that happens, now, I'm trying to remember if I had this right. I may have this backwards about SSHing into the, um, the, uh, the, the, the server. Because then the next step they did after getting in the emails is they emailed, I think they had like a guy who was sort of like a consultant, who, some guy who managed their servers, like an ISP or something. Yeah. And they emailed the, the main administrator from from the email account from Aaron Barr's email account said look you know hey i'm at, i'm in germany about a conference i need to get into this i need to get into my server real quick um and i think they had two possible 
Like, they were pretty strong passwords. I can't, and he says, I can't remember, do we go to this new one or are we using the old one? And the guy said, oh, yeah, we're using the new one. And he goes, all right, great, thanks. And he's, oh, um, and it's, it's <laughs> HG. Oh and, oh, and then they were using, actually, they were, um, they were not, they were, they were using, I think, not um, Aaron Bar's email. They were using, um, I think, Greg, the guy who started, the, the, the CEO of HB Gary proper, not HB Gary Federal, which is the yeah. main one. And then they, and they basically, they got this guy to give him the port to, uh, to open up a port to, so the guy so they could SSH into the main um, server, and they also got the guy to send them to the uh, login. He's like, oh, it's, 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 it's HG Holland is my, is still shoot, that's still a... But how could the guy possibly know, you know, that it was a spoof? Well, that he, he confirmed which password it was, confirmed the username, and he confirmed the, and, and he opened up a port for him. I guess he noticed a couple hours later that something was amiss. And, and it's funny because they did a pretty good job, and they, and they showed the email exchange back and forth, and they, they, they were just like, oh, yeah, I'm in, in Germany. We'll, we'll hook up, you know, because I guess they noticed that this guy was in Finland or something, and we'll hook up or something. And the guy was fooled, and they gave him the information. So then they got in, and they, and they, and they essentially had, got everything off the HB Gary servers. And that's when they got, they got, they downloaded all these emails, and they downloaded all this proprietary data and, and code and everything. It's just amazing. And I mean, <laughs> Uh, but wait, wait, here's the thing. Here's the thing. They could have prevented all of it if they had any one of these things had not done. If they had not been, if they had, if they had not been prone, if they protected against SQL injection. Yeah. If they which is had so not, easy, so easy. Right. If they had hashed or stretched or used decent, you know, uh, password hashing, they wouldn't have blocked at that point. If they had not reused the same um, passwords across um, multiple different accounts, multiple different you know services. And had this uh, one security or um, you know um, you know IT admin guy not given all the information to him. So HB Gary is pretty much going to be the poster child of um, of new corporate policy towards <laughs> security. Yeah, I mean you know it's funny because I had never read a story about how it actually happened. You know, people always talk about oh you're prone to hacker this and hacker that SQL injection. I had never read it. I'd never really seen how it happened. But this really sort of shocked me. Like, wow! So that's how it happens, and it's using very simple stuff, and that's how they did it. You know, it's just it oh, there's so many ways, Jason. I mean, um, for example, uh, just something else. I mean, let's say they've got a version of WordPress installed or BB uh, BB PHP BB forum, right? And someone just hasn't upgraded it. You know, they just haven't upgraded it for I don't know five months, which which can easily happen. You just kind of leave it. Um, you know, in five months, people people regularly, regularly find a backdoor, a way of executing a query and getting a result, and uh, they just fire it through that script. You know. Oh, you know, I forgot this, and that's the other thing they did. One, one of the steps, we either get access to other machines, or oh yeah, I guess they had a, a regular login and they needed an administrator login to one of the servers, or vice versa. They had an administrator account, and they wanted a normal user account. Yeah. And they the way they were able to make that happen is that. There was um, there was a, a security exploit that was for this Linux, you know, this um, version of Linux that was uh, brought, you know, made public in October, and you know, most everyone else had with by November had been upgraded, but this was February and they still hadn't upgraded the uh, they haven't the, patched the, it. Kernel pa- the kernel patch, and that would have prevented it as well. So they had an old um, they had an unpatched kernel with a well-known security exploit. You know that it's basically open source that makes it possible, right? It like that's that's kind of the good thing about not using anything open source because w- when people have the open source libraries and code and they can really go through it and re- they don't even need to reverse engineer it. They can just look at it 
and think, hmm, what did these what did these developers miss? What did these developers miss? You know, miss? it's interesting because the writer of the story pointed out that the company that made the um, proprietary CMS is it look if he they if this had been an open source CMS they wouldn't have run into that problem because they wouldn't have had these very basic security problems the 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 bad password hashing the the SQL injection vulnerability that you know any open source CMS would have had that covered. So mm-hmm. in some sense, you say, well, in open source stuff, you have more eyes on it to make sure there's no obvious security vulnerabilities. But then you're right. The second thing, what you bring up is like, well, in a proprietary one, not a, you don't have you're not, the the attackers don't have access to the source code to analyze. I mean, the the very fact that someone's out there developing and not using SQL injection is just it's just nuts. <laughs> like that's like that's what you should. Oh my god, that is just what you learn first day on the job, kind of thing. Yeah, these guys are I charging mean, millions of bucks. <laughs> it's just crazy. Yeah. So anyway, that's well, that was that story. I've just found the whole the whole anonymous HB Gary stuff just just this is a fascinating thing and the information that that has been discovered that other companies are now writing about. I mean, other um, websites are writing about the stuff that they found on HB Gary. The kind of um, manipulative things that are being marketed to governments and to um, you know, various of the, uh, you know, like the Air Force and, 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 I don't know, different government agencies and also to corporations, like persona management and, um, all, and uh, you know, just all that kind of social media manipulation and also all these rootkits that they, they, they were talking about some of this H.B. Gary rootkit stuff where, you know, and I don't even know a whole lot about it, so I can't talk about it very intelligently, but basically talking about how these rootkits can be pushed onto all these different types of computers and it would not be able to be recognized or picked up by any of the... Um, commercial antivirus anti-malware software systems and because this stuff would be wouldn't be attached to any you know operating system object and would hop around in memory and it would be almost impossible to get off and it would almost be impossible to detect and it could get information off and send it to some remote server to some remote thing would just wait till information was going out from normal web connections or emails or um just web requests and would just kind of piggyback it's just amazing how sophisticated this stuff was that they're doing Mm-hmm. And this is just a tiny little farm, HB Gary. I mean, this is some stuff they're proposing to do with General Dynamics, um, and I think uh, the other one was Northrop Grumman, um, which are you know gigantic, you know, military. Um, well, I mean, are you surprised that that large corporations and and government, uh, you know, is is happy to be completely illegal? <laughs> no, not in this at all. Way? Well, that's 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 one thing that Glenn that. Um, that uh, Glenn Greenwald has talked a lot about. He's like, you know, these, this stuff is just horrendous. What you know, people are talking about at Planeteer, I think Planeteer or whatever. And, and there's three companies that were teaming up to pitch the, um, I think it was the, um, oh, I, and the commerce, uh, I can't remember what agency it is. And also trying to pitch like a Bank of America and it's just like the amount of um, nefarious uh, things that they were going to do, and nobody emailing back and forth was saying, "Hey, you know what? This is not probably uh, legal, much less even ethical for us to be doing. We shouldn't be doing this." It wasn't until they were called out that these emails were made public that all the companies started distancing, distancing themselves, like, "Oh, we would never do this. Oh, this is terrible." Well, sometimes people don't even think that what they're doing is bad because they, it's kind of justified or somehow rationalized within their own mind. Well, people rationalize almost anything when there's an opportunity to make a lot of money or when the opportunity to, you know, gain power. And that's just how humans are. I mean, it's like, you know, you know, what if there's read Lord of the Rings, right? I mean, as soon as someone dangles some power in front of you, 
or dangles a lot of money, you know, it's very easy to start rationalizing your choices. Um, and mm -hmm. you see that happen in government all the time. I think if, you know, a lot of wars are started because people within the government have an opportunity to make a lot of money um, through, uh, you know, their relationships to companies that contract to, to the government. I mean, you know, not to get totally sidetracked, but yeah, I mean, you know, people ration, can rationalize almost anything. So um, is that, is that uh, have we covered the HB Gary stuff? I think we've covered else? it in more detail than necessary even, so let's move on. Okay, awesome. So there was a little bit of um, backlash <laughs> from from the last episode um, about some of the abstraction stuff. And oh, the there fast, was a, one, the one guy stuff. basically called me, a, essentially called me a hack, mm. right? I mean, that's essentially what he did. Yeah. Which was really nice to wake up first thing in the morning and get an email like that. I was like, give me a break. So <laughs> essentially... But it, it wasn't an email, it was a public comment. It was a, it was a comment. So essentially he's saying that, oh, because I didn't abstract every, every um, thing I wrote to start out, that I was you know, somehow you know, a hack, which of course is ridiculous because my perspective is that, you know, obviously I've been writing code for what, almost 20 years professionally. You know, mm -hmm. I've written in hundreds of thousands, millions of lines of C++ and Java and C Sharp and PHP and every other thing. And I've, you know, I've done, I've, you know, memorized, you know, the gang of four design patterns back in 94 and Steve McConnell, McConnell's, you know, code complete. And I said, so I know how to write, you know, abstract, right? The thing is that, you know, I, I fell into, I, I have a tendency to, uh, to be, a perf be a perfectionist and want to just, abstract everything and make everything's beautiful hierarchy and all this kind of stuff. Right. The problem is, is, is because I know I have that tendency, I have to try and fight against it, which means unless I have multiple reasons, multiple particular concrete sort of classes, I try not to, to start going down the path of, of abstracting before I know I need to abstract. So it's just about, it's just about like, listen, you know, I don't even know if this code I'm writing is going to be viable. If, if, if it's someone we're going to be using, and I don't want to abstract until I have other, other um, instances of what I'm going to be abstracting against. So I can know well, what am I generalizing against? If you have one example, it's kind of hard to generalize, right? So you like to see repetition before you make a decision to do an abstraction. Yeah. I mean, if, if it's something that you know, like I already know there are three outputs. Like let's say you're writing a, um, a database abstraction library, right? right? And you go, I know we need to do this. This has to run against you know, Postgres, MySQL, and uh, SQL Server. Okay, then you can go and look at the libraries and, and, and that, the, that the native libraries and start abstracting against it. If you have one instance and you're like, I don't even know what those other libraries might be, then writing and abstracting in, in an interface is just kind of getting a little premature in my book. For mm -hmm. me, I say, you know, just write the simple version now, move on, get a little more perspective on things, determine if that code is even going to be necessary. And then if I have another example, then I can abstract against it, create an interface, create a hierarchy. Whatever, you know, however you're abstracting against. But the idea, I just view, um, for, for me, I have to fight against the desire to write, um, to over-engineer, to, to, to abstract too early. Mm -hmm. That's all. And in order to make progress and gain perspective, I like to just write the simplest thing that'll work, get pragmatic and get, pragmatic and get it up there and then and move and go on. And then come back and refactor later because refactoring is is a, is a great is is a fun thing to do and and it's so much nice when you come back later and you have more perspective on things and then you, and then and refactoring is the is a process of of abstracting things oftentimes I mean refactoring can be a lot of different things but one of the things is is doing the abstractions um, so I, I 
I, yeah. I had a listen back to uh, to that show mm-hmm. a couple of times, and um, I think that I was doing in some ways I was doing that thing that we just we just described, which was kind of not listening. I was just waiting to say my next point. And what went on listening back, I kind of heard a bit clearer and louder about the bad version. You even named the episode the bad version. It's funny because during that whole episode, I didn't hear you say the bad version once when we were recording it. <laughs> but then when I listened back to it, you said it about 40 times. <laughs> it was yeah. like, so clearly I wasn't actually listening to anything you were saying, uh, which is no good. Um, so I, I, I do really get what you're saying about that. And just, you know, you, you're essentially just getting something out the door just creating something and just to make it happen. And then you can, can relook at it. Um, and I think the, the, the point that I failed abysmably at getting across was that my concept of abstraction wasn't to go and over-engineer stuff. It was just basically to say, if I'm using a third party library, um, and they just have a basic function, I'll just basically wrap it in my own basic function that mimics their function. And I do any reason why I do that is just so that I can then swap out the guts at any stage in the future if I need to. And that's the reason why it only takes, you know, two minutes. Because I'm just basically, I'm just mimicking their exact function and input and output. So I'm not building an entire abstraction system. You know, not not a very complex thing. It's just that that makes total sense. Yeah. I mean, that makes total sense. And see, the thing about when you talk about, you have conversations about, when you should abstract or when you should test or when you should do this or when you should do that. It all depends. I mean, are you talking about something that's going to take, are you just talking about writing a function around nine, you know, nine or 10 lines of code, making that a function as Rosa just of its own, that's an abstraction in a sense. Or are you talking about writing a three level deep hierarchy with 20 different classes? I mean, what are you talking about? Are you talking about something that you already have three examples of what you abstract against or you have one or you have 19? I mean, what are you even talking about? I mean, so that's why it's hard to say when you should do something when you should, shouldn't is in this matter of like, are you shipping something in a week or are you shipping something in six months? I mean, how much time do you have to do this? Yeah. Is this thing sort of an ancillary piece to the puzzle or is it part of the core engine? I mean, it just all depends. And it's all about judgment. And it's all about context. So some people, you should do this. You should always do that. It's like, it depends. You shouldn't always do anything. It just, just too much. It just too much depends. And that's why, it's so easy to say, well, I do X, Y, and Z, and the people to listen to you or read what you write and go, oh, you're an idiot or you're a hack or you don't know what you're talking about. Because you may have in your mind the instances that when you would not abstract or when you would or when you'd create an interface and when you wouldn't, and they have in their mind something completely different. And, and, it just doesn't, and you're comparing apples and oranges, and so of course you don't agree. But if you're both sitting down looking at five different examples of code bases and looking at the context of each, you probably would agree in most instances, oh, you know what, we should probably go ahead and make a function or make a class out of that, our library or do X, Y, and Z. You know, it's just... It was an interesting um, <clears throat> comment also from, from TechSing's point of view. I mean, I think, that, I think that that's the first comment that would be kind of approaching, sub, you know, being subversive um, or, you know... Um, I don't know what the right word to, to say because I don't because because it it wasn't very it wasn't a very it wasn't a trollish comment right it wasn't kind of being a troll or something like that but it was um, what's the word <laughs> help me here I don't know I mean it was just it was just really it was really aggressive you know I think I mean, yeah it's, it's I think really... it was that's that's what it was it was it was an it was an aggressive comment um, but but people are, are you know welcome to write aggressive comments but it was it's been our first experience of an aggressive comment so far. Um, so that was yeah, just kind so of, I didn't respond to it because I was like, you know what? I'm going to respond too strongly 
probably because I'm angry because this guy's essentially calling me a hack. And, you know, and, and that's just going to waste my time writing a long email. And, you know, I'll just better to talk about it on the show, if anything. Comment, not email. Yeah, the comment, I'm sorry, the email, the comment. So, you know, and I'm sure, you know, if we were, ta- if we were talking in person with the same coast, we'd probably agree on most things. It's, that's, the, that's the only problem about talking about best practices and when you should do X, Y, and Z is that everybody has in their mind, you know, the examples of when those practices would be applied. That's but also awesome. the way that once again this it's just the issue with text. I'm sure that if we were having that face-to-face conversation with that guy, like it wouldn't come across in the same way as it does via the text. It's funny because I showed I showed it to uh, to Georgie and she was like there's there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing nothing was said about that. That's not even remotely insulting. Couldn't even be. And and what I realized was it it's very specific to coders. Like mm-hmm. it's you know, it's only because we're you're a coder, and because essentially the implication is you're a hack that it's very insulting, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but if you showed it to your mom, they'd be like, "Hey, they, that's just a really nice comment." <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, um, well, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk a little more about is that whole conversation was based on <clears throat> the idea of storing images in uh, MySQL versus in a file system. Yes. Yeah. Let's let's get back into that. I don't want to spend too much time on it because I, I don't want to, you know, beat a dead horse. But it was interesting because um, I'd initially I initially stored it. Um, you know, at least the stuff that I've done so far, I've just stored the actual images in a file system with the metadata in a data in the uh, database. And the reason I did that is it seemed like that was the consensus on Stack Overflow. I looked at a couple different questions, and it seemed and, and I would say the consensus that seemed to be um, there seemed to be more um, votes behind that, okay? But then I went through and I read two different um, threads from top to bottom. And there were a lot of examples of people saying, hey, I've managed, you know, three or 10 terabytes of images and we used to do it in the database and we decided it was a disaster, so we now do a file system. And then there was other people say, oh, you know, we've done terabytes in the file system. We found it was much easier to put in the database. And then what people say was much, much slower, like 100 times slower like, you know, two orders of magnitude slower to store in the database than it was in the file system. And other people say, oh, you know, we found that we've had no performance problems. And so basically what you can determine is that you can determine anything and that there were people that have found ways to, be, to make it work really well for them either way, and they each had their trade-offs. In the beginning of the database, that you had less issues with backing and up databases and replicating is all stored in one place, which is nice. In being in a file system... Um, there seem to be advantages, and there are potentially advantages in speed, but then other people argued against that. And the whole thing comes down to like a question of epistemology. It's like, how do you know what you know? Like, you could go, you know, it's like you read an article like that, and a bunch of people vote and, and write supporting comments for like one argument or the other, like, oh, this is better, or that's better. But that doesn't necessarily prove it, right? That's just the logical fallacy of appeal to authority, but it's like appeal to the authority of the crowd. And it's not like saying, oh, I want to make X, Y, and Z happen in jQuery, how do I do it? So it says, oh, you just do X, and then you go and, and replicate what they did and go, oh, it worked, right? This is like, what's the best way to do it? And you're just trying to get a consensus or what seems to be the opinion of the people who've done it. But either will work, and it's just a matter of like, it seems to be two things that are interesting about it. One is, um, if you're not going to try both and get any numbers on it, um, how do you know how are you ever going to know which one is better for you unless you run the real numbers? And it's just a question there too, is like the epistemological question of how do you know what you know unless you actually test yourself? Well, I think the one thing you do, I mean, is, for example, 
talking to me, I mean, I, I'm not just um, someone commenting on Stack Overflow. Like I'm kind of your buddy who can talk to you about it and I've done it in quite a few different ways and had quite a lot of experience about it. That's one thing. But another thing is you can look at your your specific use case. And um, I think that from your specific use case, as far as I can see, this is my gut feel about it, right? And from from <laughs> from all the different times that I've tried it, uh, I think that your your use case very much is about the export factor, being able to e- easily export it, and the security factor. So um, something on the file system is just basically going to be harder to export because you have to export all those multiple files. You'll have to write scripts to tie them all up, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas with a database, it's going to be easier because you can just export um, a basic table, you know. And uh, um, the security aspect is essentially going to be easier because it's just it's within it's within the database, so it's going to be, I think, essentially easier, right? But there's another little uh, thing which is um, would make it easier is that because the if you are talking about scale. If all of your kind of uh, binary data is stored in a single table, it's, as I, said, I think I said this last show, it's very easy for you to shard it, you know, to, to get sharding going on. Um, it's very easy for you to point uh, that table to a different database. So you could have one, you know, one database for all of your jet generic stuff, and then you could make it really easy for the user to just specify a separate database for the table or whatever. So there's so many, for, for your use case, there's so many kind of advantages that make it less hacky. That's why I kind of think there is a kind of a preferred path from my perspective, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, you know, I, I guess it really comes down to, it's a matter of, when you have pros and cons, it's a matter of like, well, how bad is the, the con or how, how much of a benefit is the pro? For instance, if, if the performance, if it's a hundred times slower, then that would be a problem. If it's not, if it's only 50% slower, then you'd be like, okay, that's not a problem, right? And so it's a matter of like, well, how much slower is it? I mean... Well, ho- hold on, 100 times slower. I mean, if, if, if we're talking about, you know, uh, a thousandth of a millisecond versus, versus a hundred thousandths well, let's see an example. that doesn't make a difference. Well, let's see an example of, let's say that you have a page where you're going to show a thumbnail next to each entry, and it's like, say, like, you're gonna have like a hundred items print out, like on uh, like a links. Like say you have like a uh, a Reddit or or uh, Dig style app you're building. Yeah. And you want to have okay, list and it lists out a hundred stories, and each one has a thumbnail next to it. So you're gonna put a hundred thumbnails, and if it's a hundred times slower to each thumbnail, that might be a problem. You know, um, that might not be something you want to do. Um, so I'm just wondering, but a hundred times it may not be a hundred times slower. It may only be three times slower. I just don't know what it is. So when someone says on Stack Overflow, it's much, much slower, right? Or when you say, hey, you know, it's a lot harder to write the scripts. I mean, I mean, is it a lot harder to write scripts or is it like a 10-line script that you have to write? I mean, what, wh- how much harder is it? Well, that is, the, what you just described is the exact reason why your app should probably offer options and why the function that grabs the, the digital data should be an abstracted function that can either get it from the file system or get it from the database. Because some people won't, you know, it, it'll be easier for those people as well for your users to export if it's in the database, right? Yeah, no, that's, um, that's a good point. I, I think you're right. I think you've got to, I think I'm ultimately going to have to have an option so that when you create your application and you can go into like advanced settings for the application or yeah. advanced settings for the um, models, okay, we'll have a picture property or an image property 
Um, is it data stored in the database or is it stored in a file system? Which, which is kind of important just as a concept for everything that you're doing when you think about it. Because you're, you're basically building a tool and you, you really don't know what people are going to build out of it. And so it's, it's going to be very difficult to make an assumption to say that they're going to want to do things in a certain way. That, which is kind of why you need to be thinking about options. It's just in the same way as you've done with the security, you very carefully thought about the security. I think you kind of need to think these options through as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it's funny. It's every time you come to a fork in the road, it's like, you know, when you come to a fork in the road, um, you know, which way do you go? And the answer is yes. You know, you go uh, <laughs> both ways. You know, you have to be able to do both. And it's like, I'm constantly thinking about that. And so in, for us, it's kind of a... It's kind of right, like you said. It's kind of an unimportant question they ask. The 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 you, you need to allow both, um, mm-hmm. and and be, so that if someone starts building your application and they feel strongly that okay, hey, App Ignite works for me, it's cool and all, but I really feel strongly that I need I want these images in the database, um, and for X, Y, and Z reasons, they may have reasons that I hadn't thought about. And if I'm like, well, we store them in the file system for for reasons that we think are important, they're going to be like, I can't use Epignet because that's just silly, and I don't like those reasons. I mean, I, I, I guess another thing on top of this is, do the images that they store even need to be secured? I mean, or, like you also need to offer the fact that images can just be stored normally rather mm-hmm. than being served through scripts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah, know. you're right. So, so it's a pain. It's all about offering options, and you're you're absolutely yeah. right. So it's just, but this is such interesting. I just thought about Stack Overflow, you know, and these other sites where they say what's the best way to do something, or which way should not like how do what is a way to do it. It's so hard to determine get a uh, get an answer that's that makes sense unless you go and test yourself. Like, what's faster, you know, Python or Ruby? <laughs> I mean, how are you benchmarking? What are you doing? Who wrote the code? Did you write the code in the right way? What kind of service you're running on? What kind of memory are you, you know, are you using up? How kind of memory do you have available? You know, it's like it depends. I'm still gobsmacked by by the words that came out of your mouth. You're absolutely right. Now that's just that stumped me. I don't even know what to say for the rest of the show. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> you said I was right about something. That's awesome. Justin is you right? Did you I did I ways. did I change your mind or, uh, or I mean what, what's well? What's I mean, happened? our initial discussion was whether you should do it in the database in a file system. And I, what I've come to conclusion is it's inconclusive and it depends, which is what you're saying now as well. I don't think you were saying that last show, were you? Oh, I'm, pr- I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure I said, said uh, that, yeah. You, should, you, you said we should, do, you should provide an option to do it both ways? Well, if you yeah. said that, you're that right. That was the abstracted function. I <laughs> know, uh, you're extending that because that was a slightly different aspect no, of the no, conversation. No, that was how abstraction came about. Okay. Anyway, anyway. Yeah, yeah, no, no you're right. Thanks I mean, very much for admitting that. That's much, no, much appreciated. No, I, I think that's absolutely the right way. And if that's what you said, you're right. I mean... Um, you know, but you're right. Abstracting the generated functionality is going to be key. Um, and the other thing that was interesting, one thing you said, which I misunderstood, I look back on it and I go, oh, you know, I, I didn't hear what you were, I, I didn't quite understand what you were saying. Or sometimes in the middle of a conversation, it's kind of, it's hard to think clearly because you, you're, you're too busy talking or being involved in conversation. But is that the idea of storing the images themselves, let's say that you have the images are are, uh, an image is a property of a table. Let's say you have a user, and one of the pictures is their profile, right? Mm-hmm. And, you, and you were saying, look, don't store the profile image as a blob column in that table. Store them. Store all images in their own table. All images throughout the system are stored in one table, and the um, and you'll just have a uh, a uh, a foreign column um, in the 
in the user table, right? Which is what you were saying. Almost, almost what I was saying. Actually, what I was saying was don't even care where you're storing the images. Just have an abstracted function, which is get image. And then it's, you've got another one, which is save image. And then it's up, it just, it's up to you where, where that goes. It doesn't matter. That could go to the file system. That could go to one table of the database. It could go to the same table. But just all you ever do with this function is you supply an image ID and this function determines where that image is going to be saved and where it's going to be taken from. Right. And then it's in that, in your overall global settings, you, you just basically say database, file system, same table, separate table. And then it's that, it's that central function that just makes the determination based on global settings. But all, it ever ta- all, all that function ever accepts is an ID. It, it doesn't care, you know, at, at externally from the, com- the function, you don't even care where that is stored. Right, right. So let's move on. I think we've hit, oh, yeah, oh you know, actually, you know, there's one other sort of uh, subtopic based on that that I want to talk about. Yeah, shoot. <clears throat> and one reason you gave for um, not storing it in the file system the images in the file system was that you can only store like ten thousand files in a in a directory in Linux. Well, on on certain on certain um, versions of uh, of Unix, yeah. Okay, so which is interesting. So that I think we should fill that a little bit. I mean, I was having I was sort of following up on this conversation a little bit with Guyone, and he was searching on like Stack Overflow or you know Server Fault, I think, and they were talking about and someone they were discussing this issue. And essentially, you're right on older versions of Linux, older file systems, ten thousand was essentially the maximum number after that it starts to drop off but more modern file systems um you know get a millions and it wouldn't be a problem but one one point you made which is right which is app ignite a lot of what app ignite is about is exporting applications to run on other servers so you can't anticipate what kind of file system they're going to be running their application mm-hmm. on it could be on a web host that uses a slightly older file system which which means that ten thousand images. Once you pass that limit, you're going to have performance problems. Um, but um, obviously, that's not always the case. More modern file systems can have much number a larger number of files, and it's like a login search um, for the file. And also, I think the other thing about it was that the amount of files per allocated per directory was based on the number of what inodes or something, which yeah. is set up when you actually install the operating system in some static value or something. So yeah, anyway. exactly. Exactly. So that whole <coughs> I, inodes issue is negated when you use database. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. But that's, that's uh, yeah. Anyway, I just thought that was uh, uh, worth bringing up. So. Well, cool. Thanks. So I'm glad we've cleared that up. So that was, um, yeah, that's, that's got rid of all of the tension from the last show. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, we've answered the, we've answered the comment. And um, I think now we can move on to something else. What you got? I got another thing. Um, I had an idea for how karma should be allocated on certain websites. Oh, yeah. So you know how like on um, Hacker News or Dig or I don't know, Cora, I don't know, maybe Cora does this, I don't know, but you get, you get um, points for when people vote up a comment or a submission. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking that, you know, and then people get banned sometimes for doing things that are against the, um, the policies of the website. So for instance, on Hacker, on Hacker News, um, a friend of mine essentially got his uh, website uh, banned because he submitted it, the link, and then it, and it got halfway down and he didn't get any votes and he deleted it and he tried to submit it again later on and he's been banned because of that. Him or his website, like, his domain has been demanded. Hmm. And there's no one to really appeal to. And I was like, wow, that's pretty, that's rough. <laughs> that sucks, right, for that to happen. 
Um, but I mean, I guess sometimes, you know, you can imagine the moderators on Hacker News and other places have to get, take a sort of a, a, a sort of a hardline approach to spammers who are constantly trying to um, submit stuff that isn't appropriate for the site. How does it manifest itself, the, the banning? Um, what will happen is every time you submit something, it, no one else will see it, I think. It'll, it'll just be that's dead. what happened to my account. Yeah. So, so that's what happened to JV2222. So maybe that's what I did. Maybe I basically went, submitted something and then deleted it and then resubmitted it later. Yeah, and they probably banned you because of it. So that's something you don't want to, you don't want to do. Huh. <clears throat> so I had an idea for something called um, what I call like your karma hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So at least you could do this early on, but you might be able to make this sort of a, a, you know, a way that you do, the way you grow the site. So for instance, a lot of sites you can't get into unless you get an invitation. So what I would say is that if you invite someone to the site, you get karma when they get karma, and then when they when when they get like anti karma, it affects you. So <laughs> I, I, you, it's like someone says, "Hey, you invited that asshole into the club, and now you're going to pay too, right?" That's so, really good. So, I like it. So if I say, "Okay, I created this site," I mean, I I get into the site, and then and you're like, "Hey, Jason, I want to get in," and I'm like, "All right, here's an invite." I'm like, "Don't do this, this, or this, because it's going to screw both of us, right?" And you're like, "All right," and I'm like, "You got it. <laughs> don't spam it. Don't do any of these things." Because I care and I don't want you to screw it up. So it would make the people who are sending invitations very careful about who they're inviting in. And, you know, a lot of like clubs work this way. You know, you, you know, these sort of like private clubs, of different kind country clubs and probably clubs within like colleges and things where they have like, you know, they, you, you get sponsored by usually two members oftentimes. But I mean, you could, you could set up the karma system where you, you only have to be sponsored by one. So it's almost kind of like a pyramid system too, a pyramid scheme, Right. You know, like when people have pyramid schemes set up, like you make money when the people below you make money, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But it also works in karma. So, you know, if I bring in someone to the, into the, the site who does a lot of great stuff, I'm going to benefit from that, right? Like, you know, because I, I mean, which, which, which I should, right? If I, if I invite you into some, let's say a Hacker News, I invite you to Hacker News and you start submitting all these great stories and guys' comments. I mean, I might get some residual karma because like I, I invited in this all-star. I've right? got a title for it, Linked mm. Karma. Linked karma. Linked karma. And yeah. it, it's a brilliant idea. And I'm actually gobsmacked that it, I mean, maybe it has been done, maybe it's been executed, but it sounds like a very, very, because honor systems are, they're, they're kind of screwy. You know, honor systems always have uh, an issue, but this idea of linking people together in groups is very clever. Yeah, it's like I'm my brother's keeper kind of thing. <laughs> mm. You know, and which is how it works in the real world, right? Because if you're, I'm friends with somebody, and they start doing things that are unethical, I'm going to start distancing myself because, or talking and say, look, don't do that, man. You know, you're making us all look bad. It's like on my soccer team, right? If, if I'm the coach and one of my players starts acting like a jerk and like, and, and like yelling back at the ref and stuff, I'm going to think, cut it out. Get out. You're off the field. Cut it out because the guy who runs the league is going to come talk to me. The ref's going to come talk to me. Don't do that. I've just, I've just kind of realized why it probably couldn't work. Why? Because the possibilities for abuse are kind of massive. I mean, if you consider, let's say, a group of, you know, someone does well in hacking news and then they, they bring someone else on. Actually, if, if you work together as a group and you've got linked karma, y- you can game the system more easily. What do you think? Well, well let me think. I mean, first of all, if, if, if I got points because you got points, I wouldn't get as many points, right? But I may, you could also make it that I, get, that I get hurt if you get hurt. But it's like, it all gets tracked back to the initial person who invited that chain, like negative, negative, um, negative karma. I don't know. Hmm. I mean, it's, 
it's just an, an, an outline of an idea I had. It's certainly worth thinking about. I mean, there's, there's probably an algorithm in there that could work and make it so that it was, I guess it would need to be linked and distributed karma. I would call it like two-way linked karma or something, right? So you get, you know, you get the, you know, you get bad karma and good karma from it. But there, what's really key is the bad karma. I mean, you want to have good karma because, as well, because if like, if, if, if I would invite anyone, if all I have is something to lose, right? Yeah, exactly. But, but you, the bad karma is what helps enforce that the people invited in are going to be sort of good citizens that aren't going to be gaming the system and making sort of pissing in the well, so to speak. I wonder whether, whether good karma and bad karma should even be listed in two separate pots. No, yeah. no, they're not separate in the pots, but it's like, you know, if, if it, let's, let's say that you, um, let's say that you submit a link, right. And then you delete it halfway down because you didn't get any points and, and you might get like a negative 10 for that, right? Every time you do that, you get negative 10 points and I might get a negative five for that. And I'm going to be like, well, what the hell? How did I just get negative five? And I'm going to look on like some karma history and I'm like, well, your invitee, Justin, just delete a link. And I'm like, you know, Justin, cut it out. You know, don't do that. Yeah. Right. And you're like, oh, yeah, sorry. You know, <clears throat> and it would also, it would, it would sort of make me incentivize someone who's sending out the invites to have a conversation when you invite someone to say, here, by the way, make sure you read the rules of the game. You know, these are things that they don't want you to do. Don't do those things, please. This, uh, this blog post uh, for, for Rob Walling's site. Actually, just before I talk about that, um, I'll just mention something about Rob. Um, on, the flight, on the flight over uh, to, to New Orleans, uh, obviously I was listening to a few different podcasts, and one of them was Rob's. And uh, Rob was talking uh, to his colleague, I can't remember his name, Mike Tabor, I think his name is, about uh, what, what podcast they listened to. And so he was... One, one thing they were saying, one thing that uh, uh, Rob said was that he listens to texting. He, no, he basically said, when, when, I, when I jog, I like to listen to an entertaining podcast like texting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, but but when, I'm, you know, when, when I actually listen to educational podcasts, then I just kind of sit down and do it. And that really made me smile and it made me happy because I definitely would want texting to be classified as you know, in the camp of an entertaining or ed- edutainment. Edutainment, right. Entertaining, entertainment over education. <laughs> yeah, but a little bit educational. But So that made me smile. So Rob, thanks very much for that. Uh, yeah, nice I heard that too. That was when I listened to the podcast. I, and funny thing is I was listening to his podcast, Startups for the Rest of Us, when I was working out. I was on the elliptical listening <laughs> to his podcast when he was talking about listening to ours, which is kind of funny. So anyway, uh, Rob uh, has, has kind of solicited that uh, I write my, wan- my man on a wire theory for, and put it on the Startups for the Rest of Us blog. So I've been thinking about it and trying to write it within the last week. And uh, it's, it's really difficult. And it's something I want to talk to you about. It's just like that this stuff, these ideas that I have, kind of are almost like thought packet balls of wool in my brain. <laughs> and I can kind of, when they're internally inside my head, I can understand them because I've got the ball of wool as a whole. And I'm like, yeah, I can understand. I, I know why this is worth doing and why this is worth thinking about and, and why I should be following this. But when I try and explain it, it's so difficult because it's all kind of wrapped up and it's like you've got to pick off the, stra- the strands. And I wonder whether you had any experience like that where you kind of have this internal big understanding about, I don't know, maybe the system or the code base you're building. But when you try and explain it to someone, it all comes out in kind of gibberish. Well, I, I think anybody who's listening to this podcast can tell that everything, every time I try to explain an idea, it comes out perfectly the first time. 
<laughs> right? Right. It's very clear and succinct. No, I mean, it's, it, I have, I, it's, it's always really hard to explain uh, big ideas or, or ideas that have, um, m- you know, multiple layers to them. I mean, you know, it's, and not only that, but make it so that it's interesting and not convoluted. Um, yeah. I had the same thing. I tried to write the Lux surface area blog post. I struggled with that, even though it's a fairly simple idea. Um, yeah, everything, every time I tried to explain something in writing, it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's, it's rough. So here's some things you might want to try to help you. Um, is one, just write down bullet points about the idea. I know you do that kind of stuff anyway. You write outlines and stuff. So maybe try your outline approach to this idea. Just just write down all the main aspects of the idea. And then maybe try and write a sentence just ex- explaining each one of those little aspects. And then maybe try and glue that together in a way. Um, just try and explain one piece of it at a time. Um, I mean, you're going to have to make... I, I mean, every time I've written anything that was any good at all required multiple passes on it. I mean, the, my best ones um, took, you know, three to four complete rewrites. What I think is, is kind of amazing. And this, this has kind of highlighted this to me is human beings potential to kind of contain a very complex idea in their head as like a single thought packet. And it's almost like you can, you can think about that and have a flash understanding of it in in a split second it seems like language is such an inefficient way of of (laughs) communicating ideas basically like we should just be able to just think our ideas to each other just think them in a second being able to articulate complex ideas is a skill there's no question about it i'm speaking of complex ideas well actually speaking of non-complex ideas um look surface area um obviously which is a sort of a term I came up with a while back and wrote a post on. Um, somebody else followed up on that with um, a blog post called Lux Surface Area um, Part 2, How to Prime Your Brain. Um, and they sent me an email. Um, her name was uh, is Araceli Camargo Kilpatrick. Um, and she said, you know, hey, thanks for introducing the term to the world. Please find below our explanation from a brain perspective. I thought that was kind of cool. Awesome. And uh, I got in a little bit of a email back and forth with, um, with her and, um, I think her partner in this, uh, their startup company called the, I think they have a blog called the London.com. That was kind of cool. So, um, Hey, Hey, just, just, mm-hmm. just quickly. Do we have any, um, good guests lined up? What's the, what's the deal? We've done like three discussion shows in a row. Yeah, we don't. I, and I'll, 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 um, I'll send some emails today. I've been just so, um, the combination of just being sick sort of in this, you know, chest cold delirium. Um, it's, it's kind of taken me out of it a little bit and I've just been working so hard that I haven't thought about it. So I'll, um, I'll send some emails out today to some people, see if we can get something lined up for next week. So uh, talking about listening to uh, the podcast on the plane, um, I've got a new audio issue that I want okay. to talk to you about. So I was listening to our podcast on the plane compared to other people's podcasts. And you know the way that the plane makes this general humming noise? Mm-hmm. Our podcast was definitely harder to hear and understand than any of the other ones I listened to. Why do you think? Which, which is irritating beyond belief to me, especially after all the effort put into the audio. Uh, the, the reason is, is because I've been paying so much attention to the general audio to make it kind of very hi-fi. Right. Um, that 
it's a little, there's aspects of it that are a little bit too su- subtle um, in the kind of the way that the, the wave, the wave form of it is. Okay. So it's, it's not, the mix isn't ra- kind of made so that it's punchy and punches out the middle and, t- and typical, even cheap kind of podcasting software will do that. Like it will really bring up the mids and make the whole mid section of the curve of the audio right. punch out. Right. So um, I have found a mastering system for 250 bucks that I want to buy. Oh, really? You think that'll yeah. make the difference? Well, I could probably make the dif- difference without money, but when I found this, I really, really liked it. So I'm thinking maybe that should be the next small chunk of donation chain should go towards that. You think before the dis- redesign of the website? Mm, yeah, well, I'm gonna, uh, I've got a free trial of this software, so I'll put this show out using it so people can, can see and you can see what it's like. And then you can let me know. Yeah, because you think. I, I mean, okay, I want the audio to be high quality, but it's like we're tweaking one thing without tweaking the other at all. You know, the, the design hasn't been improved at all really in a while. And the, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, well, I guess we'll see what, see what the difference is. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. So, so what were you about to bring up? Well, um, so one of the things that I meant to bring up, I meant a la- the last show or two, but we ran out of time, was um, it's kind of a big issue. I am. Um, the investor in my first company, um, his name is Fez, mm-hmm. is a really good guy. And my, when I say my first company, my, my first sort of web company, um, which be- ultimately became Prezo. Yeah. Well, he um, he put in a fair chunk of change. Um, and when he made his very first investment, he, I think he, he made four investments of $75,000 um, as we went along. And in the very first investment... Um, before he made it, I mean, he was initially just advising me. I was going to raise money from other sources and I was working on the business plan and stuff. And he said, you know, he said, why don't I just invest in you that way? You know, we can just keep it simple and, you know, we'll grab lunch every week or two and, uh, you know, it'll just make the whole thing easier. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, well, you know, that sounds great. And, uh, so that's what we did. And also, you know, I was struggling with writing the business plan. I found writing a business plan about, about the most painful thing I've ever attempted to do just cause it's like such a boring waste of time. And, uh, you know, and he said, you know what, forget the business plan. <clears throat> just, he's like, I tell you what, you just do what you think is going to work. And, uh, he's like, cause I'm not, I'm not investing in the idea or the business plan. I'm investing in Jason Roberts. So, you know, you just make it happen. And, you know, <clears throat> and that was a huge, obviously a huge vote of confidence. I mean, and so when Prezo didn't work out in the end, that was, I, you know, I felt really bad because he had put in a fair amount of money. Now he's, you know, worth, you know, many millions of dollars. So it wasn't like he was in the poorhouse because of it. But, you know, he had done business. He invested in me and he lost his entire investment, right? Which I, you know, I, I felt bad about. And we, he'd always said, you know, look, if you, if you uh, do another venture, you know, I, you know, I'd like to be a part of it and invest in it and everything. And so, when I started working on App Ignite, I always thought, well, I wanted, you know, I wanted to have, you know, Fez invest and hopefully give him really good terms, you know, and, and get, have an opportunity to make his money back and then some. <clears throat> as luck would have it, as a bad luck would have it, I mean, he took a pretty big hit with a financial downturn. He had a hedge fund that um, took, a, took a significant hit that he ran. He, he ran a hedge fund, a biotech hedge fund. And... Um, so I said, you know, and, and, and so we ended up having a meet, uh, you know, we got together a few weeks ago and I, and I, and cause I, I wanted to talk to him about, you know, 
Appendite. And, I, and I've been thinking that, you know, if he may not have the risk capital to invest in another venture, I mean, he may have just taken a hit on, on that kind of capital. I mean, he was still obviously very wealthy, but not, you know, maybe he just wouldn't have that, the money he would want to invest in something uh, like what I was working on. So anyway, we ended up having a conversation about, we went and met and had a conversation about it. And I said, you know, here, here's what I'm going to do. I'd like to, you know, give you 5% gratis. And if you'd like to invest, um, you know, then I'll, I'll give you, you know, really good terms or whatever. And, and maybe be some like a convertible note or something where, you know, he'll get, a, he'll, he'll get some kind of significant, with some kind of significant discount or whatever. Now, is that 5% just undiluted whatever happens kind of thing? Right. Right. Well, see that that just straight off the bat to me that seems very fair because typically speaking, you know, if if you're getting in uh, on the on the bottom rung, right, then it's going to be let's say it's twenty percent. By the time you've gone through the whole dilution process, you'll end up with something like five percent. Yeah. Well, okay. No, let me put it this way. So, no, he won't. It won't be undiluted. Like what I, what would happen is that if I get a, if I could do a first round of funding, um, he'll get. Um, He'll he'll get a discount on whatever that valuation is. So mm-hmm. let's just say for simple numbers, it's a valuation of a million dollars. Okay, maybe the company is valued at some fraction of a million dollars, and that's all he has to pay if he wants to put more put more money in. Because what he wants to do is he he says he says he'd like to own ten percent of the company, mm-hmm. and so he'd like to be able to put a certain amount of money on ten percent, and then have a discount at the second round as well to be able to protect that 10% by investing at a discount. I mean, he'll, he'll continue to put money in, but he'll, he'll, he doesn't have to put as much money in to protect his, his ownership. So in a sense, it's like I give him 5% just, just as sort of like a statement of how much I appreciate his, his faith in me. Um, and also, but, but, but if he wants to own anything more than that, I mean, he has to put something on the table. I mean, he has to put some kind of risk. I mean, I put... I mean, I measured it somewhere. I mean, I probably put somewhere in excess of 1,500 hours into this project. So it represents a lot of work for me. This is something I've just worked on for the last, you know, couple months. Um, so. Well, the only, the only thing about that is I'm not sure that that is relevant to investment because that, that just falls in line with the whole sunk cost fallacy. I mean, you can't say just because you've put a certain amount of time in that that gives the company a certain kind of value. That's not how you value companies, right? Well, no, you value companies in terms of, you know, I mean, what the potential is and what the value of what you created is. But so what I'm saying is the value of what I've created is, you know, I mean, like I could create a company and I could spend like, you know, a month or two on it. And, and therefore, to me, it wouldn't have been as big a deal. It's like, oh, I spent two months on this thing. Here, I'll give you some percentage. And if, if I spent two years on it, I mean, yeah, it, 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 it is more valuable to me. Yeah. Five <clears> percent is, it's, 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 it represents, right, maybe it's a sunk cost fallacy. I, I don't know if that's quite true. I think it's somewhere between being, yeah, there's some sort of cognitive bias because how much time I put into it. But also I think it represents, um, I think it has a big opportunity. So anyway, it was something I've been struggling with for, you know, probably the life of the company. Like, well, how, how can I make his money back, especially if he doesn't have the risk capital? And if I do give him some percentage of the company, what would be, you know, but well, it sounds like you've offered him something. So what, what's wrong with that? No, that no deal? it's good. No, it's great. I'm just saying it's, 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 it's great. So, you know, it was nice talking to him about it. So it was nice to sort of have that, to hash that out finally, because I'd been struggling with it and trying to figure out what would be a fair number. And I thought what we came to, well, at least the initial 5%. And then we'll, we're going to have, we're going to have follow up discussion on like, you know, what kind of discount would be reasonable for the second, first and second rounds. Of and, and he's kind of happy with, with the way that's going. Yeah, no, he was, he was, he was happy to hear that. And, 
you know, I mean, he knows he's a, he's a big boy, right? I mean, he's, he's a sophisticated investor. He knows I don't technically owe him anything. Right. Yeah. I mean, if, if you invest in a company and you know, it doesn't work out, your investors, you don't owe, you don't have a personal debt to those investors. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't get anything from the time. And I mean, I spent years working on Prezo and <clears throat> you know, I don't get anything for that for the lost potential money I would have made if I'd been working a market rate or lost hours or anything like that, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, at the same time, um, I, from a, from sort of a personal standpoint, I just felt like I wanted, I wanted Fez to be able to say, I, I wanted to say to Fez, look, if you invest in me, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to make it right one way or another. You know? Yeah. You, I did business, you know, when you do business with Jason Roberts, you, you end up with some kind of profit. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it, at the very least, I'm going to do everything I can to make it happen, you know, and, uh, you know, <laughs> Talking about that, um, did you hear anything back from David Fogel? <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, uh, it's funny because he he I sent him an email um, saying that I needed to I needed to pull out of the project that he just didn't have the time to to work on it, and I didn't hear back for like a week, and I was like, oh man, or like five or six days, and I thought, oh man, he must be really angry, and I was sort of surprised because every email he ever sent was very positive and very encouraging and very sort of reasonable, so it was sort of a, a sort of an unreasonably unreasonably antisocial um, reaction. It's just a, a non-response. Right. But as it turned out, he had some family issues going on and he emailed back and he said, look, I, you know, totally understand. Uh, it's not a problem. Um, and I just, I hope we have an opportunity to work. I'd really like to work, work together in the future when you have some time. So, and, cause I offered to him, I said, look, I'll, I'd like to, you know, pay for half the cost of the, uh, the trading software. It was just a few hundred bucks or whatever, but I thought it would just be, you know, fair. Did he take I, you up on it? Yeah, he said, "Oh, that's really nice. You know, that's that'd be great." So, so that worked out great, and you know, and uh, just, I, you know, it's like I, because I, I, I have a lot of respect for David Fogel, and I think he's a really smart guy, really interesting, nice guy, and I, but just, I just had to take a really hard look at my situation. I'm just, I'm not behaving rationally by taking on this many projects, especially two, you know, projects that are not for pay. So you've been working on Uber, and they have uh, just been tech crunched. Yeah. So Travis Kalanick, who we, we had on the show back around I don't know episode fifty something, I think. Um, he uh, he was in a, one of the, the first investors. I think he was the first investor in um, Uber. It was called Uber Cab at the time, and he's since come on as the CEO. Um, and it's you know it's it's doing really well and they and they raised a second round of funding uh, for eleven million, mm-hmm. um, and you know it, it's really cool. It's a it's a really cool project for me because I'm building a Node.js real time dispatching system. Um, mm-hmm. or I should say the I'm really I'm building a real time Node uh, real time dispatching system that's built on top of Node.js. That's probably yeah. good to say it, um, which is fun. Um, it's technically interesting. Um, Curtis Chambers, who's uh, he's, I think he's a, a manager of engineering, is the is the guy I'm directly working with, and he's a really sharp guy, really cool guy, and so it's fun working with him. So it's really exciting for those guys because, um, you know, obviously I like them and I like what they're doing, and 11 million in funding is going to go a long way. They're going to that's what they. So how much time are you working on that at the moment versus Apignine? Well. I'm trying to essentially focus on just those two. So I'm trying to put somewhere between four to five, maybe four to, I mean, Travis would like to get as many hours as he can from me on Uber. Um, 
And if I was really smart about it, I'd probably spend five to six hours a day on Uber and, and, and just, you know, just to make some money and spend the rest on Epic Night. But it's probably been closer to four and four um, just right. because I'm, I'm so close. And Epic Night, I'm just the last couple of things that I'm doing before I get my first couple of, of, of beta testers or alpha testers or whatever you want to call them. So I've just been, you know, working constantly on it. So you're excited for Epic Night right now? Um, I'm very excited for Epic Night, but let me just say about the Uber thing is, yeah, I, I think that, that the company is going to work. I mean, it has a great um, opportunity, and they're hiring some really sharp people. And by the way, if you're uh, you know if you're interested in uh, working on your Python, uh, Node.js kind of stuff, NoSQL, especially if you're an algorithms guy, because there's a lot of really cool advanced data analytics things that they're going to be doing, um, send uh, send an email to me and I'll can forward it on to those guys because they're, they're hiring. They're sort of in a, they're, they're desperately trying to find, you know, top notch. Now are they looking for contractors or are they looking for full time? They're looking for full time. I'm sort of a special case. I mean, Travis obviously would like more of a commitment from me if he could get it. But I, I am unfortunately as much, even though he's reached out to me a number of times and, and um, I can't, I, I don't want to get more specific than that, but he's, he's, he had a couple long conversations about, you know, me getting uh, more deeply involved with that uh, Uber, but the problem is I have Epic Night that I'm just too too excited about right now. Mm-hmm. So, um, which in one sense you sit there, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll see the you know big TechCrunch article about raising 11 million. I'm like, oh my god, did I just make a big mistake? <laughs> but uh, the reality is, well, you've 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 been quite burnt by uh, equity deals in the past, so <clears throat> at least twice. So I think I think. Um, at this stage, I think it's the right decision for you, especially everything I know about you and you want to build your own business. You, you don't want to do something for someone else. So I think, I think it's the right path for you. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I mean, you know, somebody who's very pragmatic and just saying, thinking, just looking at things financially, they'd probably say, well, you know, you should get deeply involved with Uber. They have funding, they have growth, you know, Travis, you, you're friends with Travis. You like the people there, you know, and that's all true. But, um, I really want, you know, to, to make Epic Night happen. And I have my vision for what I want it to have, how I want it to evolve as a technology and as a company. And I'm just, that's, that's where I am, I guess, mentally. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's what I want to have happen. And so, um, you know, I'm willing to turn down extremely enticing offers in order to pursue it. Um, no, but, but luckily Travis is, is uh, a flexible guy. So he's like, look, you know, <laughs> give me as many hours as you can. I'll take whatever you can give me. And so that works out great for me as a contractor. So I can just, you know, work 20 hours a week or I can work 50 hours a week. If I feel like just making some money, I can just spend Saturday or Sunday and just, just work on this cool Node.js dispatching system. It's funny you should say that because I I can't remember any times where the person that I was working for wasn't flexible in one way or another where you couldn't cut some kind of deal, you know? I mean, there's, there's always, there's always a, some kind of deal that you can make happen. You know, um, you know, it's interesting. This kind of brings up a, another topic of, um, it's an article that, uh, let me see if I can find it. Uh, it was written by um, Jason Cohen at asmartbear.com. It was called the unfortunate math behind consulting companies. And it was talking about, you know, whether you should hire people. It's just talking about how expensive it is to hire people and what you can end up charging them out at and how much profit you can make. And the, 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 
as a result of his, of his sort of discussion, it's like, unless that's really what you want to do and you really want to grow a consulting company, it's usually better just to charge, you know, higher rate as a senior developer and work on your startup on the side. It's mm-hmm. less headache. It takes less time. You can do more fun stuff because so much of your time and energy gets sort of burnt managing other people. And there's just not that much profit margin and what you can, what you have to pay them and what you can, what you have to build them out at versus like, how many hours are they, especially if you hire them. Okay, so that's building a consulting agency rather than you just being a consultant on your own. That's right, that's right. So, I mean, I, I, think, I, I think one very doable way of, of bootstrapping is, you know, being a consultant and, uh, you know, and, and uh, building your product on the side. You know? Which is what we're doing. Which we're doing. I mean, it's a harder path than if you can go and get funding, but um, if you're in a situation where you can't live off of you know, uh, seed, you know, seed level funding, which is hard to live off that. I mean, usually that's like peanuts, right? And especially if you have, you know, wife and or kids and it gets, you know, that can become much more, and on a mortgage, I mean, it can become just not doable, right? Mm-hmm. You can't live off a $40,000 or $50,000 or $80,000 even salary anymore, especially if you live in an expensive area like New York or California or something. It's just not even, uh, it's not even possible. Maybe if you live... Savannah, Georgia, you could do it. <laughs> um, you could you could live cheaply enough to do it. But um, but the other thing saying is that consulting is tough though because as you and I found it's 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 sometimes it's feast or famine, right? I mean, it's not like it's a consistent mm. thing. And sometimes you're lucky enough to get into the zone and you have a client who has a lot of stuff they want done and they have the funding and they want you to do as much of it as possible. Then that's great. But that usually only lasts for a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you think about that? I agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so I've I've had an idea. Okay. So you've heard of NoSQL. I have heard of NoSQL, and I have worked on some NoSQL. So NoSQL is a movement. I have an idea for another an, another No movement, starting okay. with No. And um, it, it revolves around this whole thing of um, venture capital, venture funding, and how increasingly irritated I am with that whole golden ticket mentality. You get a golden ticket to to TechCrunch 50, you get a golden ticket to Y Combinator. Um, You get, you know, you raise a 10 million investment or whatever. So how about a a new movement called the No Investment Movement? And basically it's a website and a, a coalition of people who just talk about the fact that you don't need investment. You don't need anything. You can just work on a project on your, in your side, on your side time. And just build a business that can basically make three five thousand a month enough for you to live off. Three to five thousand—it's hard to live off three thousand dollars a month. Well, it's it's a start, right? So, what do you think? No, the no investment movement. No investment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's just another way of describing bootstrapping. But so, like, uh, you could have noinvestment.org, and maybe people like Rob Walling and Amy Hoy. Uh, could be, could uh, be members of that movement and well, you know, post blog posts and uh, there could be a there could be like a toolkit a no investment toolkit. Well, you know, it's um, thirty seven signals has a series of of posts that they write where they interview companies or have companies write up about themselves called uh, bootstrapped and profitable. I think so. It's like if mm-hmm. you make more than a million dollars a year and you've completely bootstrapped, then they want to hear your story, which is of course what thirty seven signals did. Right? They were a consulting company. They built a product. And then built more products, and now they don't. But have- once again, like make more than a million. I mean, you don't need to make a million a year to be. I mean, the the feeling of kind of freedom 
of not having to work for a boss, having your own business and being able to bring in, as I say, okay, maybe five to 10 grand a month through your own product. I mean, if you bring in a hundred grand a year through your own product and you're not, you're certainly not bringing in a million, but you, it's a fantastic feeling of freedom. Like imagine if you could emancipate thousands of people in that way. Right. So you're talking about, so you really are talking about the, the small scale stuff. You're not talking about companies that are bootstrapped, um, become companies. They're more just individuals who are working for themselves. Yeah. I'm, I'm basically fully talking about, um, in quotes, lifestyle business, but you know, just anyone who can have their own thing, which means that they can leave work and be their own masters, masters of their own destiny. And just a point of clarification, I think a lot of those million dollar companies would still be termed lifestyle businesses by VCs. I mean, VCs, if a company can't exit at, you know, 50 or a hundred or 250 million, even, I mean, even 50 million is not probably that interesting to them. They're looking for the you know two hundred million billion dollar exits. Um, so you know the one two three million dollar year companies that can maybe sell for ten or twenty million. That to them are those are lifestyle businesses. To them, they're not talking. They, a lifestyle business is just not a guy working at home by himself. A lifestyle business is you know five or ten people working in a company that's never going to exit and go public or anything like that. Well, how much does App Ignite have to earn before you go? Okay, that's it. I'm kind of pretty much dropping consulting. Mm, well, I probably have to make. Solid. Well, you know, it depends. Like, how much is going back in the company, and how much is going to pay me, right? Yeah, um, I'd probably have to make at least one hundred and twenty-five. Um, yeah, before I wouldn't do any more consulting. I mean, anything less than that, I would be, um, you know, probably something in that neighborhood, somewhere between one hundred and one hundred and fifty, and then I would just, you know, I couldn't do because I, I, I'd probably be close enough. Even if I was a little shy, I might be like, okay, I'm close enough. I'm going to start scaling. I, I'd probably start scaling out of consulting. If if I was able to pay myself some fraction of that, it would just sort of be a, a, a you know scaling out. But I mean, to be a meaningful figure, I mean, to be you know like to to pay a car payment or to pay your rent, I mean, that also makes a huge difference to your life. So if you if you kind of get involved in the no investment mentality and start some little business like Plugio or whatever, and you're pulling in a couple of thousand a month, I mean, that's also great, right? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, most people I would love that. I mean, if you make in a lot of these these bootstrap startups that are, you know, in software companies that have become, um, you know, modestly successful. I mean, the, the guys who start them, I've read a number of stories. They're like, oh, you know, I just want to be able to buy a video game a month or something. Well, or I want Patrick to be able to get a, I want to be able to get a large screen TV or a new computer. Yeah. And once it got them, they're like, oh, that's awesome. And then it kept growing, and they're like, wow, okay, so now I can actually pay for my car payment. And they're like, oh man, now I can actually pay for my health insurance. And my car rent. Now I can pay for my rent. You know, it just starts to go bigger, and that's why sometimes it's good to start with small uh, goals because when you reach them, you get a real positive psychological kick out of it. You know. So that's my idea. It's it's basically a meme of no investment, and that meme is about um, just starting side projects that earn you small chunks of change that gradually you can set yourself free. You know, is this just a meme that you're gonna write some articles about, or are you gonna start a website on this? It's it's just an idea and a, like it's just kind of I'm ruminating on it. <laughs> yeah. It's just a, it's just an idea and a meme, like the no investment meme. Okay, the no investment meme. Okay, yeah, I think that uh, I mean uh, it's sort of a it's sort of a a um, a different way of just saying you know uh, a bootstrapping, I guess, right? Or it, it is, but the thing is that the thing about bootstrapping is. It, even bootstrapping is kind of linked with the idea of building a million dollar business. And I'm kind of taking it a step further and saying, 
No, let's ju- just focus on bringing in even my, you know, it's more along the lines of micropreneur of what Rob Walling's talking about. Okay. But it's like, rather than being micropreneur, it's like taking a, it's, it's making a different meme out of it, I guess. Right. Which is no investment. Right. And it, I think Amy Hoy, right? It's basically what Amy Hoy and Rob Walling are doing. Right. So I, yeah, I mean, I'm not so interested in the super small stuff. I'm more interested in stuff that, like, something that makes you $10,000 a year, some little website, ah, that doesn't interest me. It just, it just seems too small fry. I'd, I'd like, I like to shoot for something that's closer to what Amy Hoy is trying to do, which is, you know, making $180,000 a year. I mean, let's get something that's a real... That's enough income that you don't have to work at all, that you can hire other people even. But it's like baby steps, right? I mean, once you understand how to build something for 2000 that essentially gets you in the, gets your foot in the door that means that you can then go away and think about how to then multiply that and scale that. Right? I guess that's true. I mean, that's, I mean, I guess that's the sort of advice you've been getting about Plugio, which is just get in Plugio mm-hmm. successful enough so that you're financially stabilized and can think about these other ideas that you want to build. Exactly. Right. Well, what's the story with Plugio anyway? Well, we're only 18 days into um, February, 19 days into February, actually. Okay. Um, but I've got 18 days worth of transaction data for me to look to see whether the improvements have really taken hold. Because okay. before I had projections, okay. and my projected growth was 41%. And now what I'm seeing is, is that my real growth is 21% so far this month. And what was your projected growth? Projected was 41%. Okay. But I, it's still, I'm, I still do need to wait for the whole month to play out because a whole bunch of signups happened at the end of the month. Okay. So I need to find out. Um, I will find that out. But, but the long and the short of it is, is that it's definitely growing, which it has been stagnant for a year. And yeah. now it's definitely growing. And 21% is not a small, a small growth curve. I mean, uh, that's 20, awesome. 20% a, 21% a month? Yeah. That's huge. Yeah, exactly huge. So um, I shall keep you, keep you appraised of that. How many hours a week are you putting into Plugio now? I was putting in a lot of time um, over Christmas, mm-hmm. uh, but recently I've had to get back into uh, the, the whole consultancy thing right. <laughs> to, to bring some more money in. Uh, my money was a bit thin on the ground over the Christmas period. So at this particular moment in time, I'm pretty much putting around about two hours a day into Plugio. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm hoping to move back to four hours a day. I've got to the, I've, I've done so much of the marketing stuff now, I really want to move back into product development. But also, I want to get this man on a wire thing out, this blog, because right. I think that that can drive some traffic to plug here. So. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's a good idea. You know, um, I have another topic that we're talking about. Sure. I'm, we're, I think we're, you know that we've, we've done our time. Oh, it's an hour and a half? Yeah, we've, we've, we've surpassed an hour and a half at this stage. Okay, why don't we just uh, call it then? We don't have to go on if you don't want to. Oh, um, that was such a sad kind of weak little defeated Uh, end to the show (laughs) okay um (laughs) well okay let's let's talk about it then okay go on then it's called there's an article called secrets of freemium pricing make the cheap skates skates pay yeah i read i read that one very carefully that was an interesting article yeah it's by the guy with the founders of assembla Mm -hmm. um and there's a couple points that i want to bring up that he that he mentioned one was people hate uncertainty and metered pricing so people talk about metered pricing, which is that you don't just pay up front, but like, you know, people pay for the minute or pay for the, you know, the megabyte or whatever. People don't like that unless it's so small that it's almost unnoticeable. Because which is what elast- you get that with elastic email. And I, I definitely don't mind it because it is so tiny. It's so tiny, right? 
Um, but if it is significant, you know, it's just it's just frustrating because it, it creates it, this is sort of this vulnerability. Like, you know, like, man, am I going to open up this huge bill? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the other ones is um, is is uh, reverse volume discount. So a lot of times you'll see people, you know, you'll see products get the more you buy of it, the cheaper it gets on a per um, per instance basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is is that a lot of times you can do the reverse of that. You can charge more on a per user basis or per seat license or whatever it is because it's that much more viable because your type of clients that are using it are, ch- are different. Which I thought hmm. that was kind of an interesting um, take on it, which is true, right? Because if if you're selling to small companies and you want five user licenses or something versus an enterprise that's going to, or you know, a larger company that has 50 or 100, they might be less sensitive to the pricing, the per, the per user licensing pricing, and it just might be more, more valuable to them. It's weird, but I, I, I think it can work, but you need to have two different pricing pages because if the plans are right there on the same page and you see that you're paying more for getting more, it might look a bit odd. But if you had like your kind of small small level plans, like a typical plans and pricing page, and then you had like a thing that said click here for enterprise pricing, yeah, yeah then I think it might work. It. Yeah. And similar to that was anchoring and commodity comparisons. So the problem that they ran into was that people were comparing um, the commodity aspect of what Assembly was delivering. So Assembly had like project management and subversion hosting and things like that. And people were comparing it in their minds against, well, you know, if I just put a, you know, I put a subversion up on some web host account and that costs me X dollars a month. I mean, why am I paying so much more? Mm-hmm. So um, you have to be very careful about what people are anchoring um, against your product. So what was their way around it again? Remind me of Well, I think what they did is they made the cheap versions of their stuff, the stuff that was a commodity in a sense, they essentially made that really cheap or free or not free, but just really cheap. And then the other stuff was more expensive. So when you're comparing commodity against commodity, fine, it's cheap, but the other stuff, there is nothing to anchor it against. And it's going to be more expensive. I had a funny, a funny email from someone who I've, I've got this thing where when they cancel through PayPal, it will automatically send them an email saying, please, please send feedback of why you canceled and get, you know, what, what you think of plug year. So someone sent back this email and said, well, it's just, you know, what, what you offer for basically the $10 a month, it's just way more than I needed. If you, if you offered a plan where you just, you know, I could just tweet out like five tweets a day, I'd be more than happy to pay three bucks a month for it. Yeah. I'm like, well, that's the free plan. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't aware that it was a free plan. Yeah, they weren't aware that it's the free plan. Free plan, and they they were of the opinion of well, that would be happy to pay three dollars a month for. Well, that that brings up another point of theirs, of um, which was never take pricing advice from customers. Yeah, <laughs> they said. Yeah, they had ninety. I think they 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 solicited advice like how much do we charge, and they got about ninety email responses, and one hundred percent of them were essentially putting the cost onto other people other than themselves, right? Like people are not capable of being objective when it comes to how much they should pay. So like, oh, well, you know, what you should do is you have the companies that do X, Y, and Z pay. And, you know, they're a small company. What you should do is make this. And he's like, you just, people are just not going to do that. So don't listen to your company, customers about what they should pay. That's a mistake. Because you've seen companies come out there who are like, they, they don't charge anything, it's free, and they're like, oh, we're going to start charging now, but we want to get some guidance from our customers. It's like, it's a totally stupid, utopian, um, naive way to do it. 
because everyone's going to come back and say nothing or it should be free and you know, make these other people pay. And that's sort of related to never take anything away um, because there's a kind of bias that more people, people are more unhappy about losing something than they are happy about gaining it. So it's like people won't look at it and go, oh, well, you know, I got use of this product or this service for six months for free and now I have to pay. So they're just like, you're taking something away from them. They're losing something and they get really angry about it. So you have to be very careful about giving stuff away for free and then for those same people coming back and, and charging them later. Mm-hmm. You know, unless you up front, you say, listen, this is going to be a limited thing, you know, a beta thing for three months of free, but then we're going to charge and it's going to be real money and, or, you know, whatever. I mean, you just, you need to be very clear with people because they'll, they'll, um, they'll, they'll be very upset if you take stuff away. So anyway, I thought that was a really secrets of freemium pricing. Make the cheapskates pay is a really interesting, it was a really interesting article. Do you think people will be upset that we're about to take away this podcast and make it end? With my, with me being sick and coughing, probably not. (laughs) They probably had enough. (laughs) Well, all right. Yeah, I guess that's it. I'm going to go and and, and cough. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll try and hopefully uh, have someone to do an interview next few days. So I'll send some emails off later today. Get it together, Jason and get well, get well. I'll try. Thanks. I appreciate it. All right. That's a wrap. We're out.